Well, if there are any doubters, there is Jaime in the youth group up on top of the tallest mountain in Colorado, 14,438 feet. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain. From the bottom all the way up, it's incredibly difficult. And these guys and one girl, Rebecca, who was with them, they did this and it was quite an experience. I flew on Thursday morning to Colorado Springs and I was going to help them drive back because I knew after you climb a mountain, spend a week in the woods, you're going to be kind of tired. And so I wanted to help out the youth group in that way and I wanted to hear their stories of what all happened as they, as they went on Wilderness Trek. It's probably been about 10 years since I've ever climbed a mountain and so I was excited to hear how it went. They met me in Colorado Springs and we were at a restaurant. I think we went to Freddy's and we were eating a burger and some fries. And I said, so how was it? What was it like on top of the mountain? The answer I got was, we didn't get to stay up there very long. You did all of this, right? And you're on the mountain for such a short amount of time. Well, the reason that they aren't up there very long is because it when you get on top of a mountain, by noontime, the storms a lot of times can roll in. If there's storms and lightning, guess what's the tallest thing in the world right now? The people, right, on top of the mountain. So the guides take them up there and they want them to get down pretty quickly to make sure that they're under any of the tree line so they're not going to get struck by lightning. So it was a pretty quick descent. And Jaime was telling me it was a, it was a tough climb up, but coming down... They were really rushing us because there was a storm that was supposed to be coming through. And so they got down and, and they were tired and worn out and beat. And they were doing a nice little uh, dinner with me. So it was, it was great to hear their mountaintop experiences. But now they're down in the valley, sore, tired. And that's kind of how life is a little bit, right? You're up in the mountain, you're experiencing these joys of life, and then it's time to come back down to the valley. Well, as I was driving them home, it was nice because sometimes when you're tired, maybe hungry, if you're like me, you get a little agitated easily. And I've had youth group trips where we were coming back from a mountaintop experience, not necessarily climbing a mountain, but there we went to uplift at Harding. And I had a couple of boys throwing punches at each other in the back of the van. These were friends, but they were tired. And we get a little frustrated too easily when we're tired. So the beauty was, when I met up with the youth group here, it was already 9 o'clock after, after our dinner. Everyone slept basically from Colorado Springs all the way to, at least to Dallas. As Jesus comes down from this mountaintop experience last, that we talked about last week, the transfiguration. This is an experience where, where Jesus is glorified on this mountain, where Elijah and Moses are shown with Jesus, the three disciples with Jesus. They are excited, and, and as they're coming down the mountain, they're probably tired. They've been up all night. And we see maybe a little bit of frustration sitting in with Jesus. And this is probably the Jesus I probably identify with the most. I can be very similar to how he is throughout this story. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus' frustration with the people, 
with his disciples and see how that applies to our life. So Mark 9, chapter, Mark chapter 9, verse 9, it starts out. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. Remember, they saw him glorified. They saw him, uh, his face shining bright as the sun, his clothes brighter than any white, any earthly bleach could ever make. He said, don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. We've got to understand that these disciples, they had just seen Jesus Christ glorified. They saw Moses and Elijah, and then they heard the voice of God say, listen to him. This should uh, be an incredible moment, and in their minds, they're thinking, it is about to come. The kingdom of God is about to rule in Jerusalem. Jesus was shown to them as the risen king, the risen savior. But they don't understand something. Why does Jesus keep talking about that he's going to die? They aren't following a suffering savior. They're not following someone that's going to be killed by the Roman government. They're following someone that's going to take over the Roman government. At least that's what they want to believe. So they asked Jesus, after they have just seen Elijah, they said, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? They're, they're trying to, to, to get Jesus to realize, you don't have to die. We've seen Elijah come, and we know what Malachi, the Old Testament scriptures, have said about what happens after Elijah comes. If you go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah. If we remember the story of Elijah, Elijah was taken off to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah never saw death, and so they, they know that when Elijah comes back, that means God's kingdom is going to be given. He says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the, of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The apostles don't like what Jesus is telling them, that he has to come, that he has to suffer, that he has to die. They don't like this. Why? They want their king to be glorious and reign and show all his power. They don't understand anything about a resurrection. If you look at the Old Testament, when it talks about the resurrection, when it talks about heaven, it does, it, it's very vague. The Old Testament doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what happens after we die. It alludes to some things, but it doesn't, it's not super clear. And during the time of, of these apostles, during Jesus' uh, ministry while on this earth, in human form, 
There's two sects of, of people. There's the Pharisees who believe in a heaven and they'll believe in a resurrection. And then there's the Sadducees that don't believe in a resurrection. They believe everything that you get in this life is, is, is what you're going to get. But Jesus is talking about a resurrection. And they think now that they've seen Elijah, they don't have to worry about any sort of suffering Messiah. But what the apostles are doing is they're, they're picking out parts of Scripture that they like. Do we ever do that? Just pick out the parts of Scripture we like, and then if something doesn't sound quite right to us, we just throw it out. That's what the apostles are doing here. Because Jesus is now going to say to them, he's going to point out, well, what you're reading in Scripture is true, but you're leaving something very important out. And that's why he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 12, He says, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Then he asks them this. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is pulling from uh, Daniel. He's pulling from Isaiah 53 where it talks about the suffering servant, that, that God's servant is going to come and he's going to suffer for the people. He's reminding his apostles that they're just picking the scriptures that they like and throwing away the ones that they don't. He says, I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything that they wished, just as it was written about them. So how has Elijah come? Well, they saw Elijah come on the mountain, but what Jesus is talking about here, he's specifically talking about John the Baptist. And in John, the book of John, when John the Baptist is, is questioned of, of if he is the prophet of Elijah, he denies it. But Luke Verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, says that John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. So John the Baptist is the symbolic Elijah that's come, that's preparing the way for Jesus. And then the physical Elijah shows up on the, in the transfiguration on top of this mountain. And so Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, or Elijah, has come. And what did they do to, a, to John the Baptist? They beheaded him. He wants his apostles to understand that in this life, there will be suffering. There's going to be hard times. But more importantly, he wants us to realize that the glory that we're going to receive is going to outweigh any suffering that we have in this life. And they don't understand the resurrection, but Jesus is trying to get them to, 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 to realize that what they will see when they see a resurrected Lord will be so much more glory shown to them than anything that they saw up on top of that mountain. So life on the mountain is great. But we're not called to just live up on the mountain. We're called to live in the valley. It's good to have these mountaintop experiences where we meet God, but we're called to live in the valley. And 
The problem with living in the valley is the valley can be tough. As they get down in the, the, from the mountain in, in, in verse 14, it says, when they came down the other disciples, when they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law were arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? Jesus comes down from the mountain. And what does he come down to? Great celebration. Everyone excited that the risen Lord has, uh, or not the risen Lord, the glorified Lord has come to the, to the, down the mountain and, and he's about to do all sorts of great things. No, he comes down to arguments. I've been to Colorado twice this summer. And each time I went there, I thought, man, the weather is so incredible here. And then I get back to Texas. I love Texas. But Texas in July is brutal, right? And I start thinking, well, why am I living in this state when there's other states out there that can have so much better weather? Well, probably because I'm not there in wintertime and I don't think I'd like shoveling my driveway every, every, uh, every winter. But we have these great experiences and then we come home and we start seeing the things that are different, the things we don't like about where we are. We, instead of just having this, we have this mindset of the grass is always greener or, or whatever the case might be, we can get frustrated when we come down from the mountain. And that's what Jesus does. He sees the arguments. He sees that not everything is perfect in this world. He sees his people bickering with one another. And that's frustrating. In verse 17... A man in the crowd answered after Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? Says, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And I think in Jesus' frustration, he says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I think this story starts to give us an idea of what they were arguing about. As Jesus is up there with Peter, James, and John, the other apostles are down, and, and, and Jesus has given them the power to do some miraculous things. He's given them the power to heal people. He's given them the power to release demons that, that, are, that, are, uh, that are taking over people's bodies. His disciples couldn't do it. And it Imagine the teachers of the law are saying, look at y'all. You're a bunch of frauds. 
You think you can do some things, but, but you can't. You don't have any power. And, and, the, and the God you're serving, this great teacher you're serving, he's a fraud too. Because they couldn't do this one thing, even though they've done incredible things, because they couldn't do this one thing, now the people are doubting. Doubting in the disciples, doubting in who Jesus is, and that's probably what the argument is. And I think about that as we live this life in the church. Our scriptures give us the answers to a whole lot of things in life. I was in a uh, philosophy class, and, and I remember uh, listening to my philosophy professor just, just say all the weird questions that we have in life, and I say, I've got the answers to all of those in Scripture. I know where I came from. I know what I'm supposed to be doing here. I know what's right and wrong. I know where I'm going. But there's some tough parts of Scripture that we don't really understand the answers. Why do bad things happen to good people? I can give you an answer uh, that, that I see in Scripture, but it's still tough, right? Why does God allow this child in this story to be possessed by a demon? I, I, I don't have a great answer for that. But I have a bunch of great answers that the God can do. And so maybe we have nine out of ten great answers, but these one, whenever you have the one, one, the one answer that we don't have, the one thing that we can't answer or we struggle to answer, that's when Satan allows doubt to seep in. And even though everything else from God makes sense, this one little thing that we can't quite get our, 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 our mind around makes us struggle. Or maybe it's not even that God's not answering, it's that the church isn't doing what they're supposed to do. And so people say, well, because the church was mean to me, or because the church did this or that, I can't believe in God. And they allow that doubt to seep in. Because of what one of God's flawed people have done. But Jesus wants to cure us of our doubt. He wants us to understand that God does have an answer, and, and the only way we can find that answer is to draw closer to Him, not run away from Him. And in verse 20, He says, So they brought Him, the child. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has, it, has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or into the water and tried to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything... If. Can you imagine what this father just asked Jesus? Who's the creator of this world? 
The, disciple, the, the, the Apostle John says that, that the world was created through him. Everything that has been created was created through Jesus Christ. And this man says, if you can do anything to help us, please. Jesus, tired and frustrated, gives an interesting response. He says, if I can, everything's possible for those who believe. If I can do anything, Two weeks ago, Sydney turned 15, and uh, she, before she turned 15, early in the summer, she started taking a driver's uh, ed course, uh, a, a thing online called Aceable. But she got her permit on her birthday, and so for the last uh, two weeks, I've been riding with Sydney, and, and as I'm sitting, as trying to be a good father, giving good fatherly advice, Right? I also spent about a decade as a defensive driving instructor, so I know a couple of things. I've been driving for a long time. I tell Sydney, hey, you need to do this or that, this or that. And Sydney says, Aceable already told me that. <laughs> I know it already. It's frustrating when you know something and you can do something and someone tells you how to do it, right? Now, we should tell our teenagers how to drive. That's, that makes sense. But how frustrated would we be if our spouses started telling us how to drive? Can you imagine that? <laughs> Nobody else's spouses tell them how to drive? I'm amazed I can make it to church any, any Sunday by myself. I think Jesus is frustrated. He's the creator of the world. Can you heal a man? Can you heal this young boy? Of course he can. Of course he can. Why do you have doubt that Jesus can do something so small in comparison to what he's done? I love the Father's response. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe... And this is honest. Help my unbelief. <laughs> I do believe in you, God, but help my unbelief. What's so precious about this experience is this man, he's struggling. He's watched dis Jesus' disciples fail. He's lived with his child. He's watched it fail. And now he's throwing everything at Jesus' feet and he's saying, just help me. Help me to believe. I was reading a Bible scholar's quote on, uh, or a quote from a Bible scholar on this. A man named James Edwards, and he says, True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. It looks more to the more powerful one, who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. Don't you like that? 
We don't have faith in what we can do. We don't have faith in what necessarily uh, these other people at church can do. We have faith in what God can do. And in this world of chaos, this world where we don't have all the answers, we need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask Him to just give us faith when we're struggling. And so Jesus sees this, this crowd that has doubt in their minds and He decides to do something. In verse 25 it says, When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, He rebuked the impure spirit. It says, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed, and violently came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he arose. You see this scene? The gospel writer Mark isn't just putting all these, uh, these stories uh, just, just uh, willy-nilly uh, anywhere in there. These stories all connect together. They're on top of the mountain. You see a, a glorified Lord. They go down to the mountain. They're saying, well, why would the Lord ever have to, have, have to, have to die? They question what the resurrection is and what Jesus is going to show them is a resurrection of the innocent. This poor, innocent child has been inflicted by evil, and Jesus is going to have that evil leave him, and the boy is going to arise. That when, the, when the people looked at this young man, they thought he was dead. And this is pointing to what they think is happening with Jesus. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus, my Savior, they think death was the victor. But what happened three days later? Up from the grave he arose. And those same words are used for the little child as he arose to great victory. What does that tell us? There's going to be times that look dark, times that we don't understand. But when we trust in God, when we, when we allow God to take us by the hand... We shall arise with him. The innocent Jesus Christ, killed on a cross, three days later, later arises. Up from the grave he arose. Everyone uh, went away from that, and, and the disciples still had some questions. They still didn't understand why they couldn't do what Jesus did. And, and in verse 28 it says, After Jesus had gone indoors with his disciples, they asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. I love what Jesus is telling us here is, It's not relying on us. It's relying on what God can do. And how do we connect with God? We've got to go to Him in prayer. We have to have a relationship with God. And that's probably one of the things that a lot of us struggle with. I know I do. 
of making sure I go to God in prayer. Go to God without doubt. Go to God asking Him when I'm struggling with, with my belief in Him to help me in my unbelief. There's lots of ways that we, we can pray and, and, and I would, I would um, encourage you to find time that you can take out of your day to block out all the noise that we have in this life and focus on our Lord, just as God says on this mountaintop, listen to Him. It's time to turn off the noise, listening to Him. One of the things that we have uh, uh, in, our, in, our, in our congregation, if you go on our website, cscoc.com or kilgorechurch.com, there's a little section called links, and on that little section called links, there's a little section called prayer lists. And John Manley does an incredible job of keeping this prayer list up to date, and it's really nice, and, it, and it, it's, it's categorized. Try at least once a week to go on to that and to look at those that are hurting in our congregation, those that are sick, and pray over those. Because prayer is powerful. And sometimes the only way someone's going to get well is going to happen through prayer. Jesus asks us to have a relationship with God to reach out to Him. And you can have that relationship with Him. You can, you can reach out to Him in prayer. But maybe today you, you don't have that relationship because you haven't given your life to Jesus. And I would encourage you, if you, if you uh, haven't made that decision to give your life to Jesus, give your life to Him today. Be baptized into Him, raised in His resurrection. Just as Christ arose from the grave, you can as well. Or maybe you just need the prayers of the church because it's hard and frustrating in this valley that we're in. If we can pray for you, if we can do anything for you, please come while we stand and sing.